Well, good morning, and uh, I am uh, delighted to open God's Word today, and I know that as we do so, I'm opening it on something that the vast majority of you are vitally interested in, and certainly our culture and society, especially in an election year, is obsessing about, and that is uh, government, and the government that is over us, and our relationship to them, and what they're supposed to do, and what we're supposed to do. Did you know the Bible has a lot to say about this? And we have been diving into this from Romans 13. We're preaching through Romans, and in the sovereignty of God, here we are in chapter 13 in these uh, 100 days until the presidential election here in the U.S., and so things are at a heightened peak of interest and in, uh, well, I don't know, what word do you want to pick it? Uh, Worship (laughs) on the subject of government. And uh, so it's a perfect time for us as a church to say, what does the Bible say about this? And we have been learning from Romans 13 that human government exists by God's will, that even if there was no sin, there would be human governance, and everywhere that God, every sphere of which God is exercising his authority, he creates authority structures, he creates governance, and that includes within the Trinity, uh, within the perfect angelic realm, within the, the home and marriage and family, within the church, So we uh, deduce from this that the problem isn't government. The problem is always those sinners who are in government leading sinners uh, who are under the government, and that is human society has always been ever since the fall. Now Romans 13 has has told us that the, the biblical will of God role of government at the very minimum is to oversee and to organize human society and to do so by promoting things that are good and incentivizing and approving of those things that are good as well as punishing that which is evil and punishing the evil doers. And so we see in this that government is one of four or five means by which God restrains human depravity in this world, keeps it from becoming as Uh, as crazy as it otherwise would be. So government is here to promote the good, to punish the bad. You'll notice that there's no statement in there about uh, healthcare policy, uh, you know, speed limits, uh, (laughs) to pick all the other things that government in our current world does. At the minimum, it's those basic things that it must do. Romans 13 also tells us how we as Christians are to relate to the governing authorities that are over us. And it basically says this, we're to submit to them. Okay? And don't we love that word submission, right? Oh, yes. That's, I, I'm, I want more about that submission thing to government. Nobody this week wrote that to me. <laughs> uh, but this is what the Bible says, that we are to submit to those that are in authority over us uh, and to make sure that we're not on the punishment side of this, but on the approval side of this, as we, in a sense, partner with government for the flourishing of human society. Paul also says, and get this, here's another favorite verse in the Bible, pay your taxes, okay, pay your taxes, and we do so uh, as a conscientious act of worship to God, okay, so uh, we may not sing the hallelujah chorus on April 15th, but there should be in our sense, in our hearts, that I'm doing this for the Lord's sake. And if we do that for Jesus' sake, maybe it takes some of the sting out of it. But that's what Romans 13 has, has told us. So, in a sense, we have exegeted the text, 
We've looked at it from a couple different angles. We're, just, it's all, we're good now, right? No more needs to be said. It's all perfectly clear in our mind. No questions out there. And of course, that is not the case. Uh, what, is, what is argued more in our society than government? What is argued more in social media? Well, I can think of maybe one or two things right now, but government's pretty high on the list. Uh, there are so many things about government and citizenship and what it means to be a faithful Christian citizen under Caesar that we want to, while we're talking about it, let's make sure that we get a full-orbed theology of it. And to that end, we're actually going to step away from Romans 13 uh, this week. And, uh, and then next week, we're going to answer some final questions on this subject. Okay, so that's the, and next week will be the end of our, our government series. Now, before we get too fidgety here today, I want you to be clear what I'm not going to do. I am not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you what political party to align with or to vote for. I, uh, I, I, we have never been a church that endorses candidates, and we are never going to be a church that endorses candidates. Uh, all the criticism about that notwithstanding. And the reason that we do not do that is that the church is called to be a prophetic voice in the, in the society. And whenever a church becomes political, it undermines its ability to be prophetical. And so we choose to be a prophetical, gospel-oriented church where people from every political persuasion are welcome in our assembly and, uh, and, and we want to, to love in spite of potential political differences. I say potential, no, no doubt political differences right here in this room. If we were to get into it, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? You know, it'd be like three people in. We'd realize, wow, there's a lot of division about this. People don't see these things the same way. And my urging in this is to remember that there is only one king that you can put your hope in. Okay? And he's not on the ballot this year, unfortunately. His name is Jesus. All our hope is in him, not in any Caesar, no matter who it is. All right, so let's talk now about, a little bit more about citizenship and faithful Christian citizenship. Have you heard the, the concept of being a dual citizen? A dual citizen. Somebody just raised their hand. He's a, he's a dual citizen. Uh, a dual citizen is somebody who simultaneously has citizenship in two different countries. You know, like, uh, it seems like here, maybe more often than not, you'll meet somebody who's a citizen of the US and a citizen of Canada, for example. Or what, pick your country. It is an individual who, at the same time, it is, a, is a citizen of two different kingdoms. And this is the challenge that we have as Christians, is that until, the, until we die, we are, citizens of two different kingdoms. And these kingdoms are very different. The values are very different. The culture is very different. And we as Christians live in the tension of trying to be faithful in both of these kingdoms. What are those two kingdoms? The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. To be a human is to live in human society. That means we gotta live under human government. We gotta play according to the rules. We gotta play nice in the, in the sandbox. We are all citizens of the kingdom of man. But we are also citizens of heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of that new creation, that new, that new uh, society that God is creating through the power of the gospel in this fallen world. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians 
3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to challenge you today that I think many of us are thinking too much about our citizenship in the kingdom of man, and not enough about our citizenship, our eternal citizenship, which is in the kingdom of God. How do we do this? Most of us probably are American citizens, and so we see it through that that grid. What I'm talking about today, I could go to Iran and I could say to Iranian Christians, here's how you live in in, uh, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of Iran and the kingdom of God. Or I go to China and talk to those Christian Chinese citizens who are citizens of China and simultaneously citizens of, of heaven. The Bible is not written to American, well, it's written to American Christians, but written to everybody else as well. And these principles transcend individual kingdom citizenship. True for all of us. Now, Jesus was confronted with this same question. And he was asked this in arguably a much more politically charged uh, circumstance than than the one that we even fit in uh, today. And this is charged now as I can remember it ever being. But it was more charged for Jesus. Why do I say that? Because Jesus was a citizen or a, a resident of Israel, first century Israel. Well, what was going on in first century Israel? They were occupied by the Romans. The Romans had come in and they didn't like, hey, why don't you all come over to our side? We want to persuade you. No, they came in with swords and armies and legions and they, they, they overtook Israel. And now they dominated Israel with overwhelming strength. And what did they, how did they do it? Were they super nice about it? Well, they weren't as bad as the Assyrians and arguably the Babylonians. But, uh, but to be in Rome meant a couple things. One is you paid incredibly high taxes. And so the Jews in the first century, they, 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 they despised the Romans, they despised the Romans' presence, and they really despised the Roman taxes. And how famous are, is the hatred that uh, they had for the tax collectors, right? Remember a certain short one that wanted to see Jesus, for example? Why was that scandalous that he went to his house? He's a tax collector. And that was the, the animus that they had towards Rome, and those taxes represented uh, Rome's foot, right, just on them, and they were under Rome. And there were regularly uprisings against the Romans. There were revolutionary groups that uh, existed, and there was always this sense of, of of a revolution about to take place. Even within Jesus' disciples, there was a revolutionary Do you remember Simon the Zealot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, was at the very least a political operative and possibly a political assassin? Always good to have one of those in your group of 12, don't you think? Not that Jesus needed it, (laughs) not at all. And so this is the setting of this moment that we're looking at where for the Jews, if, you know, anybody that was pro-Roman was instantly hated. And for the Romans, anybody that was anti-Caesar was instantly a threat. And so, look what happens now. This is Matthew 22. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, this is an interesting group. 
Let me just pause here for a moment. Okay, uh, you know, uh, what's the saying that there's some saying about strange bedfellows? Like, this is a strange bedfellows moment. Uh, or the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the Herodians were the Roman sympathizers. These were the ones that actually, I kind of like Rome being here. It's helping my, you know, my bottom line. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curring favor with uh, Pilate or whatever it is. These were people that were kind of pro-Rome. And then you had the Pharisees who hated Rome. But more than anything, they hated Jesus. And so their mutual hatred of Jesus brought them together. And here now they come to sabotage Jesus. Here's what they say. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. What are they doing? They are totally setting him up, are they not? Is this really how they felt about him? No. But they're just sort of saying nice words before they, uh, before they set the trap. Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now that sounds like a simple question, doesn't it? I mean, how hard can it be? Is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar or not? What do you think, Jesus? But underlying this, there is a nuclear bomb. This is a, this is a toxic question about, sure, whether you should pay taxes, but notice it says, should we pay taxes to Caesar? That's the key, okay? If, if, if the Jews were running their own show, there would be taxes and they wouldn't debate about it. Or, well, maybe they would still, but I don't know. But it was paying taxes to Caesar that was the rub. Caesar was the head of Rome. The current Caesar at that time, Tiberius Julius Caesar. Ever hear of him? This is the Caesar who ruled the known world. And so this is a very, I don't know, ironic moment because here you have Jesus receiving a question about whether or not it's lawful to pay taxes to, to Caesar. And so we have in this moment, we have represented the king of the kingdom of man, Caesar, and his proper place being given by the king of the kingdom of heaven, indeed the king of kings, Jesus so Rome governed the kingdom of man. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. So do you see the catch-22? Okay, I want you to realize the, uh, what they're doing here. If Jesus says, you know what, I think it is right to pay taxes to Caesar, and I would encourage people to do it. If he simply said that, all the Jews would hear that, and the Pharisees would spread the word about it, and they, they would all be like, oh, Jesus, we thought maybe he was special, but there's no way. He's a sympathizer. He's like those Herodians. But if he says, you know what, we shouldn't be paying taxes to Caesar, now the, the, the might of Rome and the threat against Rome is now forced against Jesus. And the Pharisees could go to Pilate and leverage Pilate and say, he's an insurrectionist. He's one of those zealots. Are you going to let him just walk the countryside and say these kinds of things? We need to take him down. The horns of a dilemma. There is no apparent right answer to this, unless you have the wisdom of the Son of God. And this is one of those moments that if you ever wondered if Jesus was, if his teaching was worth listening to, listen to the brilliant answer that he gives, verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? 
Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left with their tail between their legs. That's not in there, but it's basically what happened. And they went away. I mean, what an amazing answer that is. I would love to see Jesus in like a presidential debate where they have all these gotcha questions all the time. They're trying to set the candidate up. He handles this perfectly. How does he do it? He says, okay, hey, anybody got a denarius? And apparently somebody had a denarius, probably those Pharisees, they had a lot of denarii. And uh, you got to realize within this answer, there is another cultural thing going on because the coin itself was an agitation to the Jews. Why do I say that? I got a picture. Here's a, apparently this is the, at least by age, this is exactly the denarius that would have been shown in this moment. The Roman currency had the picture of Caesar on it. Every day, the currency that they used in order to buy and sell was a reminder to them of this guy who's ruling over them and they resented it terribly. You know, our, our money, in many countries, most countries' money, they tend to put the picture of, you know, the founding father or some hero in, the, in that country. That's who's on, on, on the coinage. But in this case, the Romans forced the Jews to traffic in a currency that for us would be like every day paying our bills or paying our taxes with a picture of Hitler or bin Laden on it. Every time you looked at it, they hated the Roman currency. But Jesus says, bring a denarius and ask a very simple question. Hey, whose picture is on it? Now, does Jesus not know? No, he knows. He's just taking them in a line of reasoning here. Caesar. Okay, we all know that. Duh. We all know it. It's Caesar on there. Why are you asking such an easy question, Jesus? And now he sets the incredibly brilliant hook. Verse 21. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And that sentence is arguably the most important sentence in history about the role of government and what it means to be a citizen. Perhaps the most important and most shaping in human history. Because in one sentence, Jesus lays out the relationship between the church and the state and the proper perspective of a Christian towards human government. So you might say, wait a second, Caesar, I I don't have a Caesar. Caesar here represents all human government, any human government. The things that we are to render to Caesar, Caesar has things that we are to give to him. These include money and taxation and the responsibility to submit to Caesar. And what Jesus does here is Jesus affirms what Paul says in Romans 13, that we are to be in submission to the Caesar that is over us, at least in the categories that God has given to Caesar to be over us. Now, let's just say this verse ended there. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, period, done, stop. 
What would we think to ourselves if that's all that it said? We would think, man, Caesar is the most important thing in this world. We gotta render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and apparently everything is Caesar's. We would give all our time and our energy to politics. We would have our hope in Caesar, and we would have our hope in every Caesar election. We would be overwhelmed when our candidate loses. We would be overjoyed when our candidate wins if all that Jesus said was, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I bring this up because there are so many people that are like this, where to them and their worldview, it's all Caesar. It's all about Caesar. And these sorts, they show up every election cycle, the fury and the animus and the, the energy that goes into that particular election, you can only come to the conclusion, for this person, the kingdom of Caesar is the most important kingdom. This is the thing that matters the most. It also shows people who believe that government is the great hope for humanity, and they want more and more of it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and the more that we can render to Caesar, the better it's going to be. Caesar, hail Caesar. And they post on Facebook all the time about Caesar, and they, they talk all the time about Caesar. They are kingdom of man people, and unfortunately, there are too many of them in the church. If I could just pastorally say, I wish some of you cared half as much about the kingdom of heaven as you do the kingdom of man. And I can only take that by what you post, talk, care about. And I throw that out as a challenge. <laughs> Beloved, do your emotions, your interests, your talk radio consumption, your cable news consumption and obsession suggest that government has become too important for you? That you're just rendering to Caesar what's Caesar's. So what do you do about it? I want you to realize that Jesus didn't stop with render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That is not where the period in the sentence lies. There is this other part that is the most important part. And why did Jesus not stop with rendering to Caesar. And here's why, because Jesus knew a secret, friends, and that is this. The answer to man's real problems don't come from man. They don't come from government. No matter who the Caesar is, he cannot fix what is actually fundamentally broken in us. And what is that? That is the depravity of our hearts. That is the corruption that sin has brought into our hearts. This is the, you know, the, the disconnect between creature and creator. It is the consequence in our lives of that sin and brokenness. There is no government policy. There is no governor. There is no uh, president. There is no prime minister that can do anything about the biggest problem that we have. That problem remains. And that is why in, in, in human government and in political philosophy, there are certain approaches that they just want to keep giving, rendering to Caesar more and more and more things. Easy examples would be fascism or a totalitarianism or a communism. And history shows what happens to those approaches to government. They eventually 
collapse. USSR is the most recent uh, huge example of this. They collapse. And we can render to Caesar all we want, but it doesn't change the problem of the human heart. Because the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart, and government can't touch that. And so that means every politician we vote for, put our hopes in, think maybe this is gonna be like, you know, and, and, and in they go into office, and by the time they leave, what's happened, you know? Oh, they're, they're, they did this, and there's that, and, and why is that? Because all those politicians, they carried depravity into that office. And that's why they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Or to say it this way, power reveals corruption and absolute power reveals corruption absolutely. And that is why it's the second part of the sentence that is so critical to even understanding properly the first part of the sentence. What does he say? And render to God the things that are God's. And so we ask the question, what things are God's? Here's what the Bible says. Psalm 24, verse one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Here's Psalm uh, 89, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. These and many other verses tell us that everything is God's. It's all his. He owns all of it. He owns all of us. So render to God the things that are God's doesn't mean that Caesar owns some things and God owns some things and Caesar gets to do what he wants with his things and God does what he wants with his things. No. Jesus is describing where our allegiance should be. We all have Caesars that are over us, right? We all do, and this is on multiple levels. We have Caesars. In the US, we have the president, we have the Congress, we have the Supreme Court, but then it goes on from there. We have you know, the, the governor, we have the state legislature, we have the state judiciary, but then it goes on from there. We've got local government and local officials. We would even include uh, the, 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 the police force in this as an authority of Caesar that is, is over us. In fact, you could even go beyond that and say your boss. <laughs> if you're a student, that middle school superintendent or principal, these are all authority structures that God has placed over us. They are, in a sense, Caesars that, should uh, that are over us. What should our posture toward them be? We render to them the things that God has given to them because we recognize the authority they have is authority that God has given them, okay? We render to Caesar the things that are Caesars. That's what Paul was telling us in Romans 13. What does that look like? Submit to Caesar, do what is approved, don't do what is not approved, pay your taxes. That's what he says. Why do we do that? Because earthly government is established by God. But it is the higher, get this, this is cr cr critical, it is the higher authority that endows the lesser authority with the authority over us. And a Christian is called to submit to the lesser authority as an act of obedience to the higher authority, recognizing where that authority comes from, which is God himself. 
So the, the, the posture and the attitude that we have towards every authority over us is an indication of our submission to the ultimate authority, which is God's. And maybe I'll just pause right there. Is there an authority over you that you are not submitting to? Where your attitude, your, even your actions perhaps are saying that you're kind of rebelling against authority that God has placed over you? Submit to them as an act of worship to God. Not because they're right, not because they're smarter, not because they're better or anything like that, just because God's put them there. And for us, that should be enough. So there are things that are given to God, okay, to Caesar, and there are things that are, are God's. Now, you could read this and misunderstand what Jesus is saying. And I'd like to illustrate how some people view this statement. It's like this. It's like there's this realm these are Caesar things. And what does that include? Politics, government, etc. But then there are this other area, and these are God's things. And that includes worship and faith and doctrine and gospel and missions and you know the church, and we could go on with a list of things that these are these are Caesars, these are these are God's. Well, as Jonathan Lehman points out, and I want to thank him for some of this material, so helpful. This is largely how our culture approaches the separation of, of religion and politics or church and state. And the result of that is in our society, which is increasingly secular, they will acknowledge that there is this place for worship, but you are to do this in the privacy of your home. You're to do it within the walls of your church. You are not allowed to bring any of that truth into the public square, into the halls of Congress, into the arguments of the judiciary. There is no place for that. You can believe whatever kooky thing you want to believe. You just do it in the privacy of your own life. And as uh, Richard Niebuhr, he calls it the naked public square. It is the secular culture trying desperately to separate faith and, and, and politics. The church and the state. It's being twisted from separation of church and state into separation of church from the state. It is a functional atheism and a secularism that is, that's what is being aspired to where there is no place for anything transcendent. There's no place for God. Don't even bring him up. You see this sometimes as they're, you know, they're, they're interviewing a, uh, you know, a, a potential judiciary pick or something like that, and they're very concerned about the, the Mormon, the Catholic, the whatever. They're, you're not going to allow your faith to come into this uh, your decisions at all, are you? And the candidate has to say, no, no, not at all. But what's missed is the person who's interviewing them is bowing down to their own list of gods. Get this. You can't separate religion and politics. In fact, politics is the, it's the, it's the battleground of the gods of our society. Now, they may not be Yahweh, but it can be money, it can be power, it can be uh, you know, influence and control, it can be any number of things, but those are just as much gods, right, they're not actually gods, but in the, in the parlance of religion, they're gods. What, what did the ancients do? They would create gods, what they called them Baals and Asherahs. And they would create actual physical idols and they would bow down to them. But what did those Baals and Asherahs represent? Money, power, sex, greed. 
We're too sophisticated to make something and to bow down to it. But what is going on in the halls of Congress? It is the battleground, it is the meeting place of worldviews and gods. And even that person who is insisting that this person is not allowed to bring their religion into this is by their very question revealing their own religion, their own priorities, their own, their own gods. The very first secular non-God over everything moment was when Satan tempted Eve and said, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. The Caesar of that moment, Adam and Eve, chose to make everything theirs and to not render to God the things that are God's. And that's been the story of human government and civilization ever since. Man wants to be God over everything. And the best way to do that is to consolidate power and control in government, to render everything to Caesar. But what Jesus is saying here is not that Caesar has autonomy from God. Why? Render to God the things that are God's. Again, what is God's? Everything is God's. The the earth and the fullness thereof is God's. And so if we go back to these circles, maybe this is helpful for you. Here's the picture of what this is like. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's not divorcing these two things, but he is saying that God has given Caesar certain things, a kind of provisional authority that he is over, but, but Caesar is under God. Caesar is something that is God's. The heart of the king, he, he turns the heart of the king like, like streams of water, Proverbs says. So when we are rendering to Caesar taxes or obeying civic laws, we are doing this within the broader circle of God's will for humanity and God's will for the governing of human affairs. And that means that Caesar also is under God. And the best human governments, the ones that allow for human flourishing, acknowledge that. How do they acknowledge that? By allowing for the freedom of religion. And here in America, by the way, we can't just say that's only Christianity because that's another twisted form. Beware of that. It's the freedom of, to practice religion, human beings to practice their religion. It is judicial justice. It is punishing and threatening the evildoer by wielding the sword. And so we, we see then is that Caesar is always trying to broaden its circle. It's not there anymore, but that, he wants that, his own circle to get bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, his desire would be for it to be as big as God's, for God to be actually inside of him. And this is human pride, wants to replace God. It wants to be the circle. What was the Tower of Babel? Do you remember that? You should read about that. The Tower of Babel, when mankind came together and said, let's build something that gets all the way to God. What was in their heart? We want to be God. What was Nebuchadnezzar's giant statue all about? Requiring everybody to bow down. What was, what was Rome's essential religion? Not that Jesus is Lord, but that Caesar is Lord. And what were they doing by that? They were wanting everything, even worship, 
to be Caesar's. It all has to be his. And this is human pride, okay? It's just human pride. We see it on the, on the national level. We see it within, within the home. We see it within local communities. Human pride wants the circle to be all man. No God, all man. And did you know someday they're gonna win? Someday they're gonna win. Revelation 15 describes the day that is coming, this is prophetic prophecy, when there will actually be one world government. And in that one world government, they will control every aspect of human society right down to how you buy and sell. And they will control that. This one world government. By the way, do you know how Revelation 15 describes it? A whore. That's not a very polite thing to say in a sermon, but it's in the Bible. A whore. What is a whore? It is somebody who gives something in order to get something. And human government eventually is going to give and get to such an extent that they, that government will control everything. The Tower of Babel will rise again. You look at fascism or communism, these are just foreshadows of the spirit that will allow everybody to bow down to Caesar, the whore. So the best human governments are the ones that keep a distinction between the things that are Caesar and the things that are God's, or the things that are the church and the things that are the states. And we li- we're blessed to live in a country. Again, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say this if I was in China right now, or Iran, or North Korea, or any number of countries where this is not the case, but we live in a country where from the beginning, built into the fabric of our story, is this distinction that is made. Here is the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now I could quibble a little bit with the theology there, but what it does get right, and this is based on natural law more than the Bible, but it, it makes the argument here that our rights as citizens are given to us by an authority that is higher than the government. Why is that critical? If our rights are given to us by, if, if, if Caesar gives us our rights, Caesar can take away our rights. But the, the declaration says, no, our rights are grounded in something that is higher than the authority that is over us. At that time, King George, okay, but today even American government. Our rights come from a creator, not a Caesar. So not only must we render to God that which is God's, society flourishes when Caesar renders to God the things that are God's. And that's where our, our, our authorities over us, the more they understand that and the more that they promote that, the more our society will flourish the more they try to seize control, the more they try to make everything about the state, the less we will flourish. This is built into, this is built into God's basic design. Do you remember what Jesus said when, uh, in, the, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. To me. 
So get out of your mind this like Caesar has certain authority. No, Caesar only has authority because Jesus gives it to him. And by the way, Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord, is a foundational truth for every single Christian. And we, as we talk about authority, we talk about lordship, and we talk about kingdoms, this kingdom of Jesus is real. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is so different than yours. It's, it's, fundamentally, it's fundamentally different. And the church exists to take people from the kingdom of man and to plant them by the gospel in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of heaven. And this comes not by immigration or not by you know, some paperwork. It comes by faith in Jesus as king of my life and lord of my life and savior of my sins. And if I can end a message about government and say, you know, I know you're in the human government, but is Jesus your king? And to urge you again this week to bow the knee of your heart in your life and to give yourself to the one king worthy of your life. And it's no human president or prime minister or king. It is Jesus, the son of God, the savior of the world, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the perfect king. He's the king that we're all looking for. And I would urge you to put your faith and trust in him. Well, Pastor Steve, what do we do when Caesar requires us to do something that God forbids? Or what if Caesar forbids what God requires? Or should those Huguenots have hid the Jews during World War II? Or should, should Anne Frank have hid in that closet? Or should Bonhoeffer participated in the assassination attempt, at least, of Hitler? Or should the present-day Christians, should they go out in the fields and hide out and have worship services? Or in the first century, should they have, the Christians dug those catacombs so they had a place to do worship? See if I have any more on here. <laughs> or should the Jewish midwives have restrained themselves from killing the babies when Pharaoh said they should have killed them? That's the end of my list. There's lots of other examples that you could come up with. What do we do when Caesar requires us to do something that God forbids, or he, uh, what's the other side? I can't say it the other way. You know what I mean. The omission, commission. What do we do with these things? Are there exceptions to submitting to Caesar? And what does faithful Christian citizenship look like when Caesar seeks to overthrow God? and his people. That's next week, okay? That is next week. And I hope that you will join us as we continue to explore what Christian citizenship looks like. Render, dear friends, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. And by the way, everything is God's. Amen.